Coming up on Office Hours with Carp and Loge, we discuss Donald Trump in chains, uh, Silicon Valley Bank in shambles, and Twitter gives me finally a timely and accurate press response. Also, some really good jokes from me, I swear. I really think they're really good jokes. Check it out. Welcome back, people of the pod. Season four, episode five, Office Hours with Carp and Loge. As I always am at this time, I'm Peter Loge, an associate professor in the School of Media and Public Affairs at the George Washington University and a strategic communications consultant. And I am joined, as I always am at this time, by Dave Carp, also a professor at George Washington University in the School of Media and Public Affairs. Currently very curious, Peter, who are you at other times? You know, that's that's between me and my bartender. I, uh, uh, yeah, you know, that, that should be for a therapist, not a bartender. Are you confusing bartenders and therapists again? I, I'm, there's no really, there's no confusion. There's no confusion. No. It's just, office hours with Carpet Loge where uh, some men rather than seeking a therapist just get a podcast. I, exactly, exactly. That's what my <laughs> students are for. I found therapy, I give people money and I maybe feel better or worse and it's complicated. Being a professor, people pay me money and and I feel better about myself because- It's, it's the perfect it, crime. Yeah, it, it is. is. It is. It is. It's, yeah. it's, it's a long con. Really, uh -huh. any parents at home listening? Honest to goodness, it's worth seventy-five grand a year. But any parents at home are listening, we're sorry. We're sorry. You you <laughs> made your bed. Although, and as I've told my students many times in the past, uh, you've made a huge tactical error in in majoring in political communication and not not public health because my lovely young wife, Professor Zoe Beckerman, was just named a um, a professor of the year for GW. Wow. That was announced publicly this morning. Um, she's a Bender Award winner, which means you are uh, you have to have current and former students write letters, colleagues. It's actually a it's actually a really big deal. So she's a Bender Award winner, which for those of you not at GW means she's one of the George Washington University's uh, professors of the year. We have a lot of professors, a lot of whom are really, really good. Then there's me and Dave. And um, Zoe in the School of Public Health and the Department of Health Policy and Management will be honored along with a handful of others um, in a couple that, of months. That is great. That is a genuinely big deal. It is also empirical evidence that you married up. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, I know. I know my <laughs> role in all of this. I am. No, I. there is no confusion. Dumb luck and minor tactical errors are the theme of my life. And that is certainly, of all of the people to whom I am related, um, from whom students could learn, I am like the worst choice. You get Kim <laughs> Gross in SMPA, you get Zoe Beckerman in the School of Public Health, you get Dean Loge, who taught writing at Yale. I, I don't know what kind and of professor. You. It just goes on, it just goes yeah, on. It does. And yet, does. my students are listen, listening to this thinking, is it is it too late to transfer? Is it too late? Yes. yes yeah, it is. It is. It is. Sure. Anyway, let's get to it. Let's get to it. First of all, thank you, everybody, for listening, following, rating. Tell your friends. Thank you, Alana, for your endless patience, because you have to listen to this this every every time. Also, thank you to everybody who tuned in to our, our online event. I guess it was two weeks ago now, last week, mm -hmm. on ethics, AI, and chat GPT with me and Dave, one of our, our students, Yvonne Lachon, and a colleague. Uh, Zainab Chowdhury, who's also at New Heights Communications. Really, I thought it was an interesting conversation, got some good yeah, feedback. Great. <laughs> More than 100 people, I think, have now viewed the, the video online. So it's online at 
um, uh, and we'll put the link up on the on the website. So thank you, everybody. And we'll get to more chat GPT later. But first, before we get to chat GPT, uh, Dave, you have you have a joke from I think from two weeks ago. <laughs> so undignified. So I texted Peter after the event because I realized there was a, a witty remark that I should have and didn't make. And Peter has now insisted that I should make it here two weeks later because that's how my jokes work. So it's true that when in the course of that uh, uh, event, when we mentioned the decline in podcasting revenue, which has been reported in the New York Times, it's true the podcasting boom is kind of over. What I should have said is that the podcasting boom is just like a party in college where everything ends the second Dave arrives. Yes, I realize not that good of a joke and it's two weeks late, but anybody who knows me knows that's kind of how my jokes work. I think that's a good joke and it's a quality joke. And I think those <laughs> people who want context, go back, review the previous episodes. Um, I think it's, to, you can listen and hear the in. moment when Dave maybe could have made that joke for half a laugh. Anyway. I think they're really um, clever out there will we'll cut and paste your punchline and just edit it into the previous episode. And then we'll email it around and we'll all be happier. And the sponsors will love that kind of ingenuity. Sponsors indeed, who indeed. will eventually give us money. Mattresses, we should probably talk about something meaningful. Uh, we should. Listen, um, so I want to know, we are recording this on Tuesday. Uh, it's going to come out on Wednesday. And according to at least one former president, there's a prediction out there that that former president, Donald Trump, might be in chains by them. I don't think that's going to happen. I think that he's feeling a little bored and um, maybe a little freaked out uh, staring at his phone. And now he's trying to make everybody look at him again. But just in case when this comes out, he has been arrested. Uh, what, what do you think of all that? That's the political punditry of the moment, right? This is going to remake Donald Trump and he's coming back or this will doom Donald Trump. And I think some of the best analysis notes that what this will do is everybody will say, I told you so, right? All of his hardcore supporters will go, aha, I knew it all along, the deep state and everybody paid, who who among us hasn't paid off a porn star with secret hush money and violated campaign finance laws at some point? Those are youthful indiscretions. And everybody else will go, see, I told you so, he's this corrupt, self-aggrandizing, porn star paying corrupter. And so in the short term, like you might like, the enthusiasm among his base that was waning might come back. That will fade. I think it's telling. So before he came on, I, I went to 538 that does the tracking polls of favorable favorability and unfavorability. And again, I'll put this on the footnotes. Trump's favorability as of March 20th, which was yesterday, 41.8% unfavorability at 51, at 53.1. If you go back through time to April 2020, Trump's favorability has hovered around 40 to the mid 40s. His unfavorability has hovered mid 50s to low to mid 50s since March of 2021. Like nothing's moving. It's noise, but it's nothing's moving. Mm -hmm. And there'll be a bit of a bump and then it will fade. I think what it, what it does do is create openings for people like, like DeSantis to say, aren't we just tired of the crazy? You get all of the policies, all of the anger, all of the social vitriol, none of the indictments, none of the porn stars. And certainly in, in a general election, if Trump manages to pull his, you know, 35% of the Republican base, that's not going anywhere with him. I think this is, as a little D Democrat, I think it's terrible news because there will be riots and there will be violence and there will be lies and there will be nonsense. As a big D Democrat, sure. Like this dude has never gotten more than 40 some odd percent of the popular vote. Okay, 
bring it. I don't know that this changes anything other than a new cycle might make it marginally harder for him. As a campaign guy, I haven't, I haven't worked on a candidate campaign in a long time. As a campaign guy, I would never advise a candidate to get indicted or arrested. Like that's just not part of the standard playbook, but I don't know. What do you, what's your take? Yeah, I'm pretty similar. Seth Maskett, uh, who does some, is one of the political scientists doing the best work covering uh, elections and part, particularly uh, intra-party dynamics. He had a good Substack post, I think, last week saying all, all the people predicting that if he's indicted, that will make him the nominee are I like they're, they're just they're just making stuff up to make themselves feel better. Um, and what really stands out that like to me, this all happens in the context of the November 2022 election not going as well as they expected them doing poorly against expectations, because had they had the red wave that they expected, then right now you would have a lot of party enthusiasm, bring it on, and probably an awful lot of Trump is our guy, like let's ride to victory next time. And instead, as always happens for parties, when they lose compared to expectations, particularly multiple elections in a row, the recriminations internally are starting. Are, are starting. So Republicans are fighting Republicans. Uh, we talked about this last time with CPAC turning into a ghost town. So if you are currently a DeSantis, like one of the online DeSantis supporters, you're going to be looking at at this and first of all, shaking your head and saying, you know, this is not good for us. This doesn't help us win. Um, But also like the fights you're picking right now as a DeSantis supporter are with Trump supporters. So you're going to say that really loudly. And for once, instead of trying to piss off the liberals, you're going to try to piss off the, the loud Trump people because that's the near-term fight, right? near-term, it's over a year away, but like that's that's the upcoming fight that you need to win. So in those dy- dynamics, I just don't see anybody who currently has misgivings about Trump saying, oh, well, now that he's getting indicted because he lied uh, under oath about like the embezzlement of funds, I don't think anyone's going to look at, look at that and say like, all right, this this has now convinced me I'm back on team Trump. Uh, it, it's a nuisance and a headache. Now, I, I do think the thing that does worry me is amongst his hardcore supporter base, you know, we saw on January 6th, we have plenty of people who are willing to commit acts of violence because they believe that there is a deep stout state out there controlling us all. And some percentage, I don't know what percent, but some percentage of them probably think that that deep state is also globalist, i.e. Jewish. And so I, like, I do have a little bit of worry that the if he is arrested, that is going to lead a set of people inspired by the uh, conservative media that they envelop themselves in to commit acts of terrorism. Like I, I think the likelihood of uh, acts of stochastic t- terrorism goes up if he is arrested. That is not a reason not to hold elite people accountable for breaking the law, but it is a thing to watch and be worried about. Like I, I'm just going to be a little bit more on edge if he's arrested because I'm going to be a little worried that. People who support him, like some of his random supporters, might be targeting people like me over the course of the following week. It's not great that we live in that world, but that is the world that we live in right now. So I think that that becomes a little more likely. I don't think it changes at all the likelihood of him becoming president. Now, I also still think that he's probably going to be the nominee, all things said and done, because I think De- DeSantis is going to wilt under the, the the big lights once they, they they start shining. I also will hand it to Trump. Meatball Ron is a pretty good nickname. So he's gone from calling him Ron to Sanctimonious to Meatball Ron. Like that one, that one stings, I gotta say. 
So I like I still think that Trump is going to be the nominee, whether or not he's indicted. Like he might run from jail. I don't know. That that's where we are. I I think all the expectations that this is going to change everything uh, are pretty much wrong. Yeah, I think I think that's right. There is nobody out there who thinks, well, this is the final straw. Yeah. But I also do think that if there is violence, um, you might see some Republicans who have been sort of trying to finesse this stop trying to finesse it. Mm-hmm. You know, and say, okay, we're like we're done here. We're just and I keep. Everybody keeps saying that, but I keep coming back to an article from Quarterly Journal of Speech ages ago on Evan Meekum. So Meekum was a governor of Arizona a long time ago, Mm -hmm. used car dealer, was elected. Turns out he was corrupt. Who would have imagined such a thing? But he, I know, right? (laughs) You can't trust the used car dealers. Who Who can you trust? trust? It's Arizona had this string of indicted governors, like used car dealer and a developer. Really? In Phoenix, a developer (laughs) was corrupt? I can't. Huh. Who could have at any rate, but it was using a mid 20th century critic named Kenneth Burke, right? Mm-hmm. Who argues for archetypes of sort of people. And one of his, one is the hero. And Meekum came in as this heroic outsider figure. I'm going to fix things. I'm going to shake things up. Kind of an American trope, right? The businessman who knows how to do things right. So he went, but then he went from hero to buffoon and buffoon is another trope where you, now everything you do is clownish and gets in your own way. And so Meekum mm-hmm. went from super popular to super unpopular. And tried a couple of comebacks that, that, that failed. And I keep waiting for that moment with Trump because the analysis fits and it doesn't quite happen. Mm-hmm. But at some point, I really do think this isn't a gradual demise. At some point, a bunch of people are just going to go, okay, we're done here now. Yeah. And he'll, re- Trump will retain, like he'll go from 35 to 30 or something, right? Or his, his favorability rating will drop five points. He'll keep his core base. But but the Senator McConnell's of the world will stop trying to finesse it and go, look, just stop. Yeah, I, I have two things to add on that. One is the Dominion lawsuit is going to factor into this in some manner, because I think it's going to be less the Mitch McConnell's than the Tucker Carlson's. And Fox has a real problem with this law. Like it has a real problem with this lawsuit. And I think they are internally calculating what do we need to do to retain our audience versus like OAN and Newsmax. Um, and again, this is where Republicans fighting Republicans ends up really mattering because they are going to be uh, watching intently for any signs that what their audience wants is more DeSantis and less Trump. So I think that's where we would see it turn is at some point the word is going to come down from Fox. Listen, not only is uh, are we on the hook for a lot because we lied on air, but also our viewers have lost their taste for him. Everybody, time to switch gears. And if and when that happens, I think that's when it moves fast. The other thought that this brings to mind is like it, it is easy to look at the Trump era and how his poll numbers never moved up or down and say, you know what, like nothing ever, ever matters. And I have, you know, I've been one to say that actually sometimes in print. It's worth keeping in mind that the predecessor for him on the Republican side, George W. Bush, left office with a popularity in the 20s. Yeah. And that yeah. was, you know, that, that was post Katrina and post Abu Ghraib. Uh, we just kind of reached a point where even Republican, like Republicans still supported the party and they quickly invented the Tea Party so they could rebrand. But they kind of looked at the guy and said, you just you just suck at this. We are. We're, we're, we're done. We're tired of it. And that hasn't happened for Trump, but that doesn't mean that it can't happen for Trump. And yeah, like if he's sitting around in like in jail 
still complaining about how this is the deep state who caught him in all of his accounting lies. That might be when they say, you know what, we kind of we kind of like meatball wrong. Like give us some more meatball wrong and stuff. I, maybe I mean, there's a lot to unpack here, but I would also note that that Bush was never hugely popular. He was relatively unpopular until 9-11. Popularity spikes, then it continued to drift down. And mm-hmm. there are other structural issues going on, right? I mean, the economy was like the global economy was on the verge of collapse, and you blame the guy in charge. Yeah. Right. So there's Bush never had the cult of personality. Um, he never had the hardcore base to support. He was an mm-hmm. R, establishment R. His dad was president. His grandfather was a senator. Like we're lining up, which is different yeah. than Trump, who's Trump. I mean, the, bear in mind, the Republican platform for Trump's reelect was whatever occurs to Trump next. Right. Like, and Trump is also a performer and a media personality in the way that George W. Bush never was. That's true. Yeah. yeah Bush. Was- I feel like the standard wisdom from folks like me has been once you have the nomination, you can win because people are just voting party line. And those numbers don't move kind of no matter who you are. Right. The assumption is if you're the nominee as the Republican, you start out with 45, 46 percent of the electorate nice. and the next few percent either way is just re- it, like the next few percent is very hard to move because nobody moves. And maybe that was different 15 years ago. Like maybe like it's hardened a bit. I don't know if it's hardened a lot, but like that, that hardening, like it's it's entirely possible, possible within the party network that Republicans will still vote for the Republican nominee and still yeah. give him the same favorabilities. But once they're done with a the guy, they're done with a the guy. And they're not done with him yet, but they could be. Right. And that becomes a general. Anyway, this all to be continued. We've been at this for way yeah. too long because you, my friend, want to talk about like an ATM or something on the West Coast. There's this bank. It's called Silicon Valley Bank. Right. That's where you keep your silicone. Is that right? I keep my- that. That's where they keep the silicone. It's yes, like it's like the it's like a blood bank, but for silicone. It's it, it's like a seed bank. Yeah. But um, for precious minerals. Yeah. Um, you are so wise, and I just don't understand why it's your wife who got the teaching award instead of you. <laughs> yep, I so, am related yeah. by marriage and birth to all sorts of well-respected academics and uh, college professors. Mm-hmm. And and of all uh, of them, you're the one that I have a podcast with. That's that's just less about <laughs> you than it does me, my friend. That's I feel like that's yeah, I feel like that's nothing good. Anyway, yeah, I um. Since we last talked, there was a bank run. I didn't really know that bank runs were still a thing in 2023. Uh, that's because bank runs up until a week and a half ago weren't still a thing in 2023. Um, and I feel like from a political communication perspective, particularly as somebody who studies a lot, spends a lot of time studying tech, like I feel like this was just fascinating. Like there were so many elements of this that felt like rich texts to me. Because how this, first of all, the way that this started, apparently, I mean, the the bank was mismanaged, but it was mismanaged in pretty pedestrian ways. Like they didn't invest all of their clients' money in NFTs. This wasn't like an FTX thing or downstream, or it wasn't like they were invested in FTX. Like the various ways that Silicon Valley companies have been failing over the past year and a half, this is none of this. What Silicon Valley Bank fundamentally had done wrong was buy a bunch of long-dated treasuries. And those treasuries make money when interest rates are low. They lose money when interest rates are high. They should have done better. Like, I'm not a, a banks person, but all the banks people were like, what the hell did you have that much invested in that for? Everybody knew that 
uh, um, interest rates were going up, including the head of the bank who was apparently like in the uh, California Fed. Like it was mismanaged, but it was mismanaged in like such a normal sauce way. Um, and it was still mismanaged in a manner that like if nobody takes their money out, they would like the bank would have lost some money, but it would have been fine. They did a bad job of announcing that they wanted to raise some more capital to, to cover the, the gap. And that also led to somebody with a newsletter uh, publishing his newsletter that like he looked at the numbers and said in his newsletter, you know, technically these guys are insolvent right now. If everyone took their money out, they would be destroyed. And that newsletter kind of ended the bank, which I got to say, speaking as someone as a new, with a newsletter, hashtag life goals. But the, the reason that mattered is that all the big venture capitalists read this guy's newsletter and they then literally freaked out in their WhatsApp groups. Like there were actual WhatsApp groups of like a hundred or so uh, venture capitalists saying like, oh God, there could be a bank run. If there was a bank run, since all of our investments have millions of dollars in Silicon Valley Bank and the FDIC only insures up to a 250K, like if there was a bank run, then all of our investments would get wiped out. And they kind of like in a single, like in a couple of WhatsApp groups, like worked each other up then Peter Thiel or, or Peter Thiel told all of his investments, get your money out. And everybody said, oh God, Peter Thiel's making a bank run. Let's make a bank run. And on what, two Fridays ago, $42 billion left the bank. And then the FDIC by like mid-afternoon had to take it over because more billions of dollars were still trying to leave the bank. So like the venture capitalists, like, they, like Silicon Valley Bank was primarily catering to venture capitalists and startups not just the companies, but also like their mortgages, their home, like all of their savings were in this bank above the 250K threshold. And they all freaked out and killed the bank, which A, tells us like, these are not special geniuses. These are dumb boys who are just as like just as uh, vulnerable to panics as everybody else. It's also, I think, an indicator again of the runaway economic inequality that just makes everything worse. Because this wouldn't have been a problem a couple of decades ago. The, the problem here is that a single text chain can freak each other out and then move $42 billion. If their investments, like if a small number of people didn't control that much wealth, they wouldn't be killing a bank by accident. They would have to do it like on purpose probably. And then after this, after they freaked out and killed their bank and then realized, oh God, on Monday when the banks open up, nobody, like none of our investments can make payroll because the money that they had in the bank is gone because the bank is gone, including companies like Voxstock, like Vox Media was invested there. So, and, and like a bunch of companies, their their payroll processes were invested there. So like, this was going to be a real crisis had the FDIC not stepped in and said, fine, we're just going to cover everybody above the 200, like that 250K insured thing. Like that, that's not a thing anymore. We just insure everybody's money in a bank, which like, okay, yeah, I think your money invest, like your money in the bank should be your money. That it seems weird that that's how things would end. Just all of this uh, led to the, a full weekend of, Jason Kalkanis and David Sachs, like the world's dumbest but loudest venture capitalists, freaking out on Twitter saying that this bank run is going to be worldwide. This is going to be the end of the banking system. Uh, Balaji Srinvasanan, who's another one of these big players and is big into Bitcoin, has been insisting ever since that we're about to have, we're going to have hyperinflation in the United States within 90 days because the like era of banking is over. Because they're convinced that this must be the beginning of a worldwide crisis, as opposed to just a bunch of dumb boys freaking out. But like that, that freakout had the the like all the hallmarks of crisis communications gone bad from people who didn't have a communicator who could pull them to a side and say, "You made a mistake. Here's how to fix it." 
So it has just been fascinating to watch these venture capitalists with their pants down, running around showing that they know nothing about banking and they can't even act in their own interests. From a comms perspective, there are a couple of things I think that that become really interesting here. Mm -hmm. Uh, One is it's a reminder that once again, with apologies to Winnie the Pooh and A.A. Milne, we're all just bears of little brains. Mm -hmm. It's not those people who overreact. It's people who overreact and we are people. And some are better at taking a breath and not overreacting. Some are worse at it. But ultimately, people tend to behave as if they were people. The second thing is, you know, crisis comms, something spiraling out of control. You need a team to say what's going on, who matters, what's the goal here? How do we contain this? And that's a rhetorical strategy. Then from the outside, the other piece that I'm seeing, because I'm not, I don't follow Silicon Valley or tech that much. And my money is not in Silicon Valley bank. And I don't have that much of it anyway, but it's from the, look, this thing's happening. That's bad. It seems super scary. What is it? What does it mean? What do I do about it? And now you have the competition to define the thing. Does this matter? Mm-hmm. Um, like, and how much does it matter? And if so, what is it? And what is it evidence of? And what therefore right. do we do about it? And you have Senator Warren stepping into this void. You got activists, groups stepping into. Aha! This proves I was right all along about Dodd Frank. This proves I was right all along about consolidation of wealth and power in Silicon Valley. This proves I was right all along about capitalism. This proves I was right all along about whatever it is, right? So now you've got competing for the definition and the emergent definition among policymakers, activists, whatever group you're in, determines what you then do about it. Right. Because the definition determines the range of possible outcomes and you choose among those outcomes. And we go back to the traditional chart of get on the agenda, definition, status, options, choices, right? And so for me, that's that's what's been 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 super interesting to watch. And there's not been a lot of reflecting on that in the media so much as which which surprises me a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, that reminds me once again, everybody should read the Schatzneider, right? Like this is classic E.E. Schatzneider, conflict expansion, defining what like defining the the core narrative of what this issue is, then sets the sides and defines the possibilities. A definition of terms is the supreme instrument of power. Exactly. Which comes from Schott Schneider. Footnoted in Baumgartner and Jones. Just saying, got to get a plug in for Frank there. Thank you for uh, reminding me me of my undergrad thesis. (laughs) So to be continued and to be followed. But again, I think from a comms perspective, you know, if you're an advocacy organization, uh, you either latch on to a definition that proves you were right all along, or at this point, you're frankly out of the game because this is... Mm -hmm. This stream has been moving for for a while, but I think people like Senator Warren and some others in that space have done a good job of saying, aha, see, this proves we need A. We had A, A went away, this horrible thing happened. Why? Because we don't have A, therefore we need A back. And there has to be a plausible story of that connection, like it intellectually has to make sense, the story has to sound true, Mm -hmm. but this failure is a result of a lot of things, Yeah. right? I mean, there's no one magical thing It's a bunch of stuff, many of which, all of which are plausible, many of which Mm -hmm. are plausible. And it's the one you, you, you enter on, right? It's issues are multidimensional, right? You know, they're all true, but the definition that wins determines a range of policy, uh, possible outcomes, all of which will be in the footnotes, including Schneider, but also Baumgartner and Jones. So the, and one other bit that I would point out there, because of course I want to, uh, is the temporal element of it, Yeah, Like part of what makes this interesting is like, there was a, there was a, bank there's a bank run 
It was a bank failure, which, I mean, if you had asked me the, on the day of our chat GPT event, what do you think of Silicon Valley Bank? I would have said, is that a bank? Now it was one of the 20 largest banks in the country, but like, I, I don't know the names of the 20 largest banks in the country. It's not a thing that I have to know or care about. And then when there's a bank failure, that leads to a window, a window of opportunity, who can cite Kingdom too, that leads to a window where people are intensely interested in understanding what the hell is this and how do I make sense of it? Right. And for, for advocacy groups who spend a lot of their time trying to frame and define issues and getting very little traction, that's because these, these moments are where you can get a lot of traction because people are genuinely trying to understand what the hell was that? Whereas in your day-to-day -day slog of let's try to get people to pay attention to this issue while also defining it, there you're pushing a boulder uphill while also trying to redirect it. Whereas here, the boulder's moving and you're just saying like, this is a way to make sense of a thing that you desperately want to make sense of. I, th I think that's right. And this actually, we talked about this in my strategic communications class this night in the grad program. Um, we happen to be talking about policy entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. right? And one way to understand how policy change happens is there are people, individuals, uh, you and I know some of them, who have a level of social acuity. They understand networks. They're nice. People like them, like to work with them. They understand um, strategy, how to frame issues. They understand time and timing. So they'll see an opening like this and go, you know what? This is a terrific opportunity to promote Senator Warren's favorite piece of legislation on this. I'll make some calls. Yeah. You build a quick coalition. You then <clears throat> reach out to friends in coalitions who work on financial industry reform, consumer protection, things like that, and say, you know what? Senator Warren really wants to jump on this. If we get you some talking points or a piece of model legislation, can you get behind it really quickly? And there's a person at the center of this who sees the window, sees the time, has access to the networks, is trusted among the networks, and will expend some of their own political capital or personal credibility to sort of lead by example and step into the void, make it easier for them, for others to follow. If you're listening yeah. to this and you're an advocate and you're thinking, aha, I should do this now, you've lost. You're too late. Yeah. Right. The, the moment to strike that is you, you get a Twitter look going, holy cats, this is bad. I need to act on this now. And holy cats is a thing. Google it. We're moving on. I can't, I can't believe so I, I want to just add a little bit of levity because I, I don't think I've told you about this yet. You have cats? So, so, no, God, God. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to bring some positive energy here. Don't don't throw that at me. So I did go ahead. I, I sent an inquiry to uh, press at twitter.com yesterday. I reached out to Twitter's press office with a, a, an email. Just I wanted to inquire into Twitter's financial future. Uh, so I'm going to read you the text of the email. It was a quick one. I said, hello, how would you describe Twitter's financial future? And how would you describe Elon Musk's stewardship of the company? Thank you. Because um, I, I think it's important to, to check in with their official uh, comms team and see what sort of answers they gave. They replied with a timely, accurate, and insightful response. Poop emoji. <laughs> that will be going in the footnotes, ladies and gentlemen. Now, the, the reason for that, the actual story here, and the reason why I, I bothered with that, that setup, uh, Elon did post to Twitter yesterday that starting now, because they, they haven't had a press team in a while, and there's been an open question, when are you going to rehire an actual press team who can respond to media inquiries? So he announced yesterday on Twitter that starting now, press at twitter.com just auto responds with poop emojis to all questions. That's amazing. He has decided that this is the clever way to stand up 
to the press is no matter what your question is, my answer is poop emoji. Do you think this is a good comm strategy or a bad comm strategy I, for the world? I have to say, man? for our listeners who are students in either of our classes, if you put that on an essay, I will applaud your chutzpah and then fail you. But you'll go down honorably. We're moving on quickly. <laughs> You've got a terrific sub stack that we're not going to talk a lot about because the clock is running. But the short version, like the short version? Short version. Yeah, I got an email last week from somebody who wanted help tracking down an old article of mine. I'm always happy whenever I find out that somebody sees value in an old thing I wrote. Um, but it was a little weird because I didn't actually recognize them. There was an article from 2010. I was like, I don't remember writing or publishing that. Maybe I'm getting old. So we had a, like a few email back and forth where I tried to help him figure out, like he had a full citation. He had a, like a, a web link, a DOI, but like the web link was broken. Um, it looked very real. And it was only after several emails back and forth that I said, this doesn't seem to exist. Where did you find this citation? And then the student didn't reply. Like that, that, that was the end of the conversation. So the Substack is about what I'm pretty sure happened there, which is, I'm like 95% sure that this was my first encounter with a phantom citation generated by ChatGPT. And that's been leaving me thinking a lot about how do we re responsibly use this stuff at all? Because my instinct going into it has been that these generative AI tools are probably a good place to start your research, but a bad place to finish them, uh, finish it, uh, kind of like Wikipedia. And already what I'm seeing is it's not even a good place to start your research because these models have no notion of the of the truth. They have no real grounding in, in actual truth or fact the way we understand it. And so they they made up a plausible sounding citation and then it was left to the student to try to track it down. He reasonably reached out to the author saying, hey, can you help out? Both of us mystified because it was just made up by a network of machines with no notion of truth. So it's, to me, it's just an indicator of the frustrating, wearying times that we're about to get into. And that's why I talk about it in the piece. You want so, to talk about Plato now, don't you? So well, I'm going to in a second, but <clears throat> so to that, uh -huh. two things. One is I read Dave's Substack. He comes by my office yesterday. I happen to be typing him an email oh. quoting. This is, this is not the copy of the Phaedrus that I showed you in my office because it's the one I keep at home. One of the <laughs> ones I keep at home. And in- Sorry, one of the, how many copies of this book do you have? Of the Phaedrus, I think only two individual and one in a collection of things, but I've got like three of the Gorgias and probably four Protagoras. I don't sure, know, they're cheap. Sure. And like, yeah, yeah. I don't okay. know. At, uh -huh. at any rate, <laughs> Socrates asked Phaedrus what's make, what makes a good speech. Phaedrus says, what I've heard, my dear Socrates, is it is no necessity for the man who means to be an orator to understand what is really just, but only what would appear to be so to the majority of those who will give judgment, not what is really good or beautiful, but what will appear so, because persuasion comes from that, not from the truth. So basically, ChatGPT, once again, has simply reinvented the, the ancient Greeks. There's a lot going on with ChatGPT that I'm going to keep putting on ethicsandpoliticalcommunication.org in our blog, just updating a list. I'll also put it on our footnotes. Most recently, there's something called Campaign Tech put on by Campaigns and Elections. It's a conference put on by Campaigns and Elections. The agenda for their a fourth and fifth conference includes ChatGPT, Dolly 2, Bard and Beyond, how generative AI will reshape campaigning. They talk about digital targeting, digital fundraising, but then a breakout sessions exploring four potential applications for generative AI in political campaign space, copywriting, graphic design, GOTV, voter contact, persuasive messaging, and on and on. 
if you look at the um, ethics and political communication website again, there are there's a company called Polyscribe that is selling services to congressional offices to back write first drafts, first drafts of congressional mail, social media content, basically constituent communication. Uh, there's a professor at Stanford we talked about a few weeks ago who's, who's experimenting with this for lobbying efforts. I mean, there's just a lot of people in the political space uh, playing with this, um, mm -hmm. a lot to unpack, which we will not do here. We did on our event, uh, campaign, uh, Media Ethics Magazine out of UT Austin is coming out with a special issue within the next hopefully four weeks. Dave and I have pieces in others about the ethics of this. Uh, much, much more to come, but it's really worth tracking. All right, we're at, we're this is a long dog walk. I'm sorry to the dogs. Uh, let me just end. I I, I want to ask one important question to you, or, or one question for the listeners to think about, which is, what does Peter Loge have in common with my five year old daughter? I I, I give up. They both love Plato. <laughs> how long how long did it take you to get that you've been working on that i although well, no, i you, the amount of time that i had to wait not interrupting you in order to deliver that joke listeners i'm telling you now and you're going to hear this from me a lot it is always funny to compare to uh confuse plato with plato always funny. You know, i feel like i feel like that's a joke that could have waited for two weeks uh <laughs> that's all we got that's all we got it's long it's weird i don't know it's what we do it's been one of those one of those runs you good, Dave? Anything good? Anything to add? Uh, nothing to add. I'll help cut more Substacks over the course of the week uh, or the course of the next few weeks. But I'm looking forward to talking to you and everybody else about Donald Trump and Chains when next we talk. Where do you where do they find your Substack? Uh, DaveCarp.substack.com. Are you still paying attention to the to the Muscoverse? Uh, I'm still occasionally writing on that. And I think in the next couple of weeks, I'm finally going to um, write the essay I've been meaning to write. Uh, looking at uh, looking back at my book, The Move On Effect, 10 years later, or now 11 years later, um, and looking at how the models of digital activism have condensed in the in the decade since. So uh, a nice one for those of you who are big fans of 10-year-old activists. I'm at P-L-O-G-E on Twitter, peterloge.com slash podcast. You can get all the footnotes and ethicsandpoliticalcommunication.org for all your chat, GPT, AI, ethical quandaries. Follow us, like us, tell your friends. That's what I got. Thanks, everybody. See you in a couple weeks.